stories we tell communicate who we are and what we value. Each episode, we consider a different story from our perspective as women. From murder ballads to fairy tales, we discuss the power these stories have over us all. This is our history, both real and imagined, told through the eyes of today. This is Femlore. Oh, hello, Mindy and Andy. Hey, Rach, how's it going? Oh, it's going good now that I'm around Andy. Not that you're, I mean, you're kind of chopped liver. <laughs> I know, he's pretty cute. For he's... anyone who doesn't know, Andy is my little dog, and he loves recording with Rachel and I. He's <laughs> he's down by our feet, um, just relaxing. Burping while we're interviewing <laughs> yeah. people. Mm-hmm. We're, we're hoping we can cut that out, but sometimes he adds some, um, some audio tracks of his own. So, will, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Typical man trying to make it about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <just> Always burping. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, yeah, I'm super excited. We're back for episode two of the new season. So, yeah, what do you have for us, Rach? I'm going to be telling the Queen of Sheba. Ooh. And, um, and what pairs well with this story uh, is the United Nations Human Rights, the Office of the High Commissioner. And you can go to ohchr.org to donate. And um, basically what they do is promote and protect all human rights, help empower people, assist governments, and inject human rights perspective into all UN programs. So take a minute and donate like the podcast will. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Join us in making a difference. We Just to make sure and share that with our listeners. So each episode, you'll continue to hear us. Um, we work with our special guests or we do research on our own to find a nonprofit that um, aligns with the either the story or like the the impact of the story and like how we're trying to help. So um, yeah, it sounds like a great cause for this week. And I'm super excited to hear the story. All right, here we go. The Queen of Sheba had heard of the great wisdom of King Solomon, which she did not believe. How can a man be so wise and devote his life to a God he cannot see, she thought. My people worship the sun, which provides warmth and light to all those who step into it. The sun sleeps at night and arrives each morning to wake the world. That is true power. Yet, she was curious. Besides, he was the king of the Jewish people, who are now a force to be reckoned with. His people were no longer fighting amongst themselves, but were now unified. Best to make friends rather than enemies, she thought. She wanted to meet the wise king and decided to send gifts to his court to see how they would be received. He did not answer her gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold. I must take gifts with me, and under the guise of a gift, I will test his knowledge, she thought. The queen had servants summon her camel and accompany her to the United Kingdom of Judah, and to the newly built temples within the walled capital city of Jerusalem. Sitting on a slope, the city was well fortified. It had an ideal vantage to see miles around it and the farmlands that supported the city's population. If nothing else, the queen thought, this King Solomon was wise to build a fortified city like this. She sent a messenger ahead to notify the king of her arrival. At the gate, she was met by the king's emissary, who she accompanied to King Solomon's palace. When she arrived, she presented her gifts to the king. I present you more frankincense, myrrh, and gold, King Solomon. She spoke loudly in Hebrew at the bottom of the stairs to his magnificent golden throne, surrounded by golden lion statues. Welcome! With that, King Solomon gestured to his advisor and said, You have had a long journey. Let us give you some tea and bread. In a moment, she said. I come from the great kingdom of Sheba, where rumors circulate that you are a very wise king. She paused and continued. The king nodded and she nodded back before asking, 
Seven to part at nine, two pour out and just one drinks. What am I talking about? Solomon thought for a moment and replied, When a woman is pregnant, her seven-day period leaves her, and nine months of pregnancy arrive. After birth, she has two breasts from which her baby drinks. The queen's eyes glinted. Very good, she said, trying to appear diplomatic, but certainly not impressed. May I ask another, wise king? He nodded. What is the mightiest organ in the human body? She thought he would say the heart, which has been known to persuade armies, or the face from which beauty springs and can be used for the wearer's aims. To her surprise, he replied, the tongue. Dear king, why do you say the tongue? She asked. Life and death are in the power of speech, he replied. Time to up the stakes, she thought to herself. What is living and does not move, but when it is decapitated, begins to move? He laughed softly at first and then loudly. Was he laughing at her? Surely not. His eyes fell on her and he slowed his laughter to show he meant no offense. He replied, you are a wise queen. You speak of timber. Care to expand? She said with a twinkle in her eye. The timber used in shipbuilding. Trees do not move when alive, but when used for a ship, they move across seas. She asked him many more until she grew tired and thirsty. He answered all of her riddles with thoughtfulness and skill. He is wise, infinitely so, she thought. A smart man that does not worship up to the sun? After her last riddle, she asked, Tell me of this god you worship. The queen of Sheba returned to her kingdom, a believer in God. Wow, Rachel, thanks for telling that story. Um, I'm so excited. We have a very special guest. My friend Ushi is joining us this week. So Ushi, why don't you say hello to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself? Hi. Hi, hi, hi. Hello. Um, I, uh, I'm Ushi. I consider myself an octopus lady, uh, which means I have tentacles and many, many, many thoughts. Uh, I just kind of like go under the overall umbrella term of being a creative, but I do a lot of things um, and I don't do a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm originally from Bangladesh and uh, I moved to New York when I was 18, which is where I'm still based. And yeah, I'm very excited to be on today. Awesome. Well, we're super excited to have you. Yay. And I know um, this story is just so awesome. It has so many different versions. And I think that's one thing um, we wanted to kind of jump in or talk about, you know, just kind of the connection between the places and how folklore changes and connects to the people and the time and the place. And I know um, when we first started talking about this story, we we chose and we told um, it's a pretty biblical version that we shared. And um, when we first shared it with you, I think some of your reactions were that you actually hadn't even heard this exact version. So I'd just love to get your thoughts or things that you, um, what you had heard in your stories of the Queen of Sheba that may have been a little right. different. So even that is interesting, because like, it's like folklore and we, we don't consider like how much of folklore comes from religious traditions, like how many of them come from Abrahamic traditions, like how People often think of religion and they just think of like religion and of itself and they don't understand there's like culture and mythology and like uh, sociology all attached to it that sort of both mutates and evolves in and of itself, like completely separate from religious aspects, you know, um, and the Queen of Sheba thing is like one of them. So I come from Bangladesh and I'd heard already, even from like, my end of it, I'd heard like various stories that don't necessarily line up to each other. It's sort of like, a, it, it, it reminds me of like Arabian Nights where it's like, yeah, you have like, for Arabian Nights, you have like books, but even the books are separate. Like even the books don't have necessarily the same stories. 
you know, um, and people embellish and they add and they go go along with the oral tradition. And so Queen of Sheba was similar to that in that even I heard like multiple stories that didn't add up to the same story. It was clearly just one of those things that could be more than one story. Um, and I think that's something like a lot of like Western folks don't necessarily have the practice for, except for maybe in fairy tales. Um, well, but even with fairy tales, well, that's what you guys do. But um, <laughs> even in fairy tales, like I feel like right now in culture, there's like a monolith and then there's like uncovering the originals. Whereas I would say for Queen of Sheba, even now, if you go to like where parts of the world where I come from, there isn't a monolith. It's still understood that it's like a a multifaceted, like open to interpretation, open to storytelling story. So even that is interesting. Um, I'd heard, like, I feel like my primary impression of it, because I was like reading up like right before I got on with you guys, and I was like, which ones of these have I heard? And which ones do my memory remember versus not? Because memory is interesting that way too, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't know what you actually heard growing up versus, I don't know, like influenced or took in in other ways. But for That's me, the so clearest true. memory I have is that of the riddles, right? My grandma, and I don't know if this is like, again, early memories. I don't know how much of this is like me associating things versus actual memory. But my grandma loved to tell riddles, right? Like she was, my grandmother, this maternal grandmother, very big on the oral tradition. She's a complete genius, like brilliant mind. Had she been born in a different generation where she didn't have seven kids to take care of in the middle of like world war partition and an independence war, she would have been like one of the greatest writers of all time. Like literally, I believe that. Um, but she was, she was so smart. And like one of the ways in which she would test our intelligence, you know, the grandkids and her son would be through riddles. And that's why I think of Queen of Sheba because like Queen of Sheba and Solomon's like courtship was about riddles. It was about them like asking each other riddles to see what they knew, but like what they knew on a deep soul wisdom, metaphysical sort of way. They weren't obvious answers. They weren't just intellectual answers. They weren't just like answers of the mind, but it was about like that deep soul wisdom, that esoteric wisdom. And that's how they tested each other with the riddles. And so for me, when I think of Queen of Sheba and Solomon, I think of that love story. But I think of that love story being uncovered through the process of asking each other riddles. And like for me, again, riddles for me is like how my grandmother would test where we were at in our development. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like the strongest part of the story that I remember from very early on. It was like, no, Queen of Sheba wasn't just smart. She was one of the greats and she went toe to toe with not just a king, but a king that like commanded like angels and demons to build his empire. So, you know, you think about the, the levels of knowledge that comes for that. It's like, no, she went toe to toe. Yeah. And that's inspiring. And that's like, I love that because what I'm hearing is your grandma instilling in you guys, like, the power of education and knowledge and being able to go toe to toe, like with a man and the power of women. But I do think also, uh, reading up on the like tradition of the story, the original one and the one that we shared with you, they actually don't have a courtship. So I'm very interested to hear uh, how that courtship, yeah, the courtship was kind courtship of... courtship is like... Yeah. That's oh, sorry. No, sorry. go ahead. No, the courtship is like a hallmark of like how I know the story. Interesting. Like it is like the hallmark. Like it is basically like how I know Queen of Sheba is like the love story. 
Like that's how we're told it. Interesting. Yeah. So did that make you like, you know, it's interesting too, because does that set expectations of what you want in a partnership? You know, like when you're oh, thinking of interesting. like what you want in a relationship, was that something like, you know, on your Tinder profile, do you put riddles? Is that <laughs> <laughs> not quite, but I don't even think I was, um, uh, to give you a little context, like my, both my parents were pilots, like they both had the same job. And in fact, my mother was uh, a little more educated than my father because he was, she was an architect before that. Um, so for me, I don't know. If, and like, you know, we come from like a, like I'm trying to explain the context of like how we think differently a little bit, or especially where I come from in the particular like class, particular cross section of society I come from. But like, we haven't, we mostly had female prime ministers, but they're like family dynasties. So it's like borderline nepotism, but not, uh, but we haven't, we primarily had female prime ministers like the entire time I've been growing up. So the idea of women in power being like a foreign thing or women being equal is like, it's very complicated because there are still cross sections of society in which women are very, very, very disempowered. And the baseline is very much so not the case compared to say the West. But then we have women in positions of power that the West does not. Mm. So in that sense, we're like more advanced. So that's like a, it's like the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Um, so I didn't come up with not considering that. Like I wouldn't need a story for that because that was like in the fabric of like how I was raised and everything I saw around me. Right. But I think that's what's so powerful and important of folklore is like that kind of helps to get it there and you know like and I think it, it's so telling of cultures and I know you and I have talked about that because I know you shared you just are so knowledgeable on different cultures and context and religion and I think that's what happens with so many of these stories and that's how at least in my opinion um, you know I am not an expert on this but that's how those traditions and things get passed down and like what makes me so interested in the power of these stories and also the erasure of these stories and the selective mutism or the selective telling or retelling of these stories. Like if you, I can, I can tell a lot about like what a person's uh, cultural or like familial um, education or like values are based, like even like, okay, let me give you an example in the Islamic world, right? Like you can talk to one person and they'll be like, oh yes, like the prophet Muhammad's wives were, most lauded, most respected, you know, here's how he wouldn't have been him or the Islamic Empire wouldn't have been him without his wives. Like, here's the person that reached out to the poor. Here's the person that could like integrate classes. Here's the, you know, he married uh, a rich widower, you know, even that, like his first wife was a rich widower when he had a lower station in life, even like the power differential of that, right? You know, like marrying a powerful woman when he himself did not have that power. Like, even that story is in the fabric of it. But if you talk to necessarily, if you talk to a sexist man who wants to erase all the power of all the women in the history and the origin of Islam, they'll just be like, well, Muhammad had a few wives, right? You see how different that is? Mm -hmm. You see how different that is versus like, okay, no, here's how the women he married and here's how the, uh, the women of Islam are the pillars of like the spread and understanding of how we, how we, approach this religion and so this is why i keep going back to like the culture around things are very much about 
who tells the stories, who interprets the stories, um, and who chooses and interprets based on their own personal values and agenda, mm-hmm. you know? Definitely. And so I think that's, like, part of why, like, the Queen of Sheba myth is, like, so interesting and fascinating because, like, it's different in Judaism. It's different in Islam. It's different in parts of South Asia. It's different in, if you talk to Ethiopians, they have a completely yes. different folklore around it, yeah. you know? Because for them, it's, like, the Ethiopian Jewish tribe started, like, the descendants are considered the origin of, like, the son of Queen of Sheba and Solomon, Melanek, I believe. Um, Some people believe it's, like, a latter Jewish settlement, but that they they kind of attach the mythology to it. So we don't even know how much of that is, like, quote-unquote real versus not. You know, like, how much of that is actual history or how much of that is, like, complete mythology and archetypes. We literally don't know. Yeah, and in that in the research of that, right, um, I was finding very different stories and very different uh, viewpoints of Queen of Sheba, and I think that's you know that idea of folklore and place is so evident in this story specifically, and how that kind of wraps itself up into some sort of nationalism. Nationalism isn't really the word I'm looking for, but like a cultural identity across people, right? And how the story mm-hmm. can really mean something because you know there there's been work like I, I found a BBC article. Um, you know, I found like a, a New York Times article that talked about, hey, um, here's where the Queen of Sheba was actually from. But I, I wonder mm. how much that actually matters, right? Like, does that matter? Right. Does it? Does it not? Right. Um, and also, for the record, this is, again, goes back to the same thing. It's like, depending on who tells the story, uh, a woman can be lauded to a position of, of power and equal versus uh, also maligned. So like, there are versions of the story that are like, uh, she had to come and he was forewarned by jinns or demons. Because again, so, like part of why I'm obsessed with King of Solomon, I think he's fascinating, is because he like mastered sort of both realms and then had to make free human will ethical choices of which he wanted to use and how. So he's very much like representative of someone that used the left-hand path and the right-hand path and then made his human free will choice, which I think is like relevant to all of us. Um, but before she was coming, apparently one of the jinns or the demons were like, no, 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 no. She's half, she's half um, some kind of animal, donkey, something, right? She has, she's a witch. She has, like, she has, she's half animal. She has hairy legs on a, what do you call them? Uh, what is Hooves, right? Sorry, I'm I, like drawing yeah, a blank. I saw, yeah, I saw yeah. that one. Yeah, where they, they said that she had hooves. And so he should Right, yeah. and so then... As as he as she's about to enter the palace, these demons uh, essentially make this entry to the palace that looks like a pool of water, but it's actually glass reflecting. So she thinks she's going to have to wade through a pool, though in other stories it is a literal small shallow pool. So we don't know which is which. But again, mu- mutable stories. So she lifts up her skirt. So and in some stories, it's that she's perfectly she's a normal standard woman. She's like, damn you, Jins, you were really trying to make me believe that this woman was not fully human and here she is a beautiful woman and that's when he falls in love. In other versions of the story, she lifts up the skirt and she doesn't have those, she has normal feet, but she has, and this is where it's fucked up, <laughs> she has very hairy legs. And in, again, in some versions of the story, she's like, okay, that's cool, she's human though. <laughs> and in other versions of the story, she's like, well, see, I've had the patience and grace, and I love her anyway, so will someone please make her a dip <laughs> <laughs> Right. 
vegan western legs oh wow so fucked up yeah right which is so fucked up but it's like who wrote that story who wrote that version of the story you know there's like like even in that even the the hoof and the hair right one would be like okay women as witch women as like uh not quite human especially a darker skinned woman a black woman or at least an African or darker skinned Arabian woman, even that, like there's like racial slash, um, not even, I mean, it's not the modern construct of race as is now, but even, even within that, the colorism and the idea of what is barbaric outside of, uh, quote unquote civilized, quote unquote, what, what one person considers civilized versus the other. Right. Mm -hmm. So even that is like, okay, well, you're from the, you're from farther East. You're a sun worshiper you don't believe in the God that I do. Therefore you must be subhuman. Therefore you must be like evil and a witch somehow, even that like the fear of the other, it's almost like an archaic version of xenophobia loaded into being afraid of the feminine. And when you combine the two, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, well, so it is so like interesting, just all these little nuances within the other versions. And I feel like Usha, you and I were even talking about just, stories of, you know, religious stories, whether it be the Bible or, you know, any other story and how they are just sometimes can be changed and have these things in there to for somebody else's gain. And I think oftentimes like these little nuances that you're talking about, like it's like the game of telephone almost like how these stories change over time and somebody's adding in what they wish to see or what they want to see. And I think you just brought up so many interesting points of, um, seeing that, whether it be, oh, well, women shouldn't have hairy legs, women shouldn't be darker skinned. But, um, you know, there was something else that you said. But also being afraid of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, even that story, the undertone of that is like, women are something to be afraid of, you know, this other well, thing. Even the calling too. of her as like a witch. I think that's, you know, any like a smart woman who could stand up to men go to like oftentimes we're called a witch and you hear and see that in this story as well yeah and i think that non-conforming is key here too right because like you see that even in like um, i'm gonna pull it back to american folklore because i'm very familiar with that but like you know the women that live in the woods right they're not conforming to what society sees as mm-hmm. feminine right and i think queen of sheba really does an interesting uh kind of switch on that because she's not conforming but she's accepted i guess and th- i think that's very interesting i do think more than accepted yeah. they, they revere they, her they, that's true they make it on <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's right and and have a child but i think that the interesting symbol of the glass floor i, I would love to hear your thoughts on that because i i think this idea of mirrors is a very interesting kind of symbol of showing us who we really are and I, I just love mm. love to hear like any thoughts you have around why you think that's there or have you, you know, you can just. It's interesting that you interpreted glass floor to be mirror because in my mind's eye, even that, like, right, like, this is how mutable the story is. Even that, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing glasses in sheer. Glasses in what? Sheer, like as in like transparent glass. So oh. for me, when I think of, that glass hallway, I think of, you know, something that looks like you're about to dip in or looks like it could be water because it's reflecting, but not reflecting in a mirror. I was thinking of like glasses and transparency Uh, and people being afraid of like transparency, aka vulnerability and intimacy. Mm -hmm. Because if you're standing on like transparent glass, what does that mean? 
So even even in that, right? Like we saw different glasses in our in our <laughs> mind's eye, and we interpreted that differently too. Like how fascinating is that? Like even in talking about it, we like two different people had two different interpretations with that. Isn't folklore the best? That's the best. We can all see ourselves in some way. Yeah, it's, it's really like cool. it's like a choose your own adventure mm-hmm. slash war search. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and like even when you were talking about the. Um, you know, like being scared of the woman and the witch thing, like I would like, I would contend to add even further than that. Like I would say even women of a particular, okay, let me put it this way. Part of like the, the thing with Abrahamic religions and you can, this is part of this story as well. is sort of this, this exclusionary idea of like, we have the right answer. Like, this is, I mean, I'll just be honest, like all Abrahamic friends sort of do this to a certain extent. It's part of the culture around all three of them is, you know, we, this is it. We have the right answer. This is our tradition is the right path to God. And despite the infighting between all three Abrahamic religions, all three still fundamentally believe the same. And, you know, and in Islam, you believe all three are part of the, the same tradition, but you still think this is the right path. And so even the witchcraft thing, like my mom used to curse me out and be like, you're a fucking witch and blah, 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 blah. And you were born as a witch. And like, not great. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun of like how verbally abusive my mom was. But like, I thought that particular insult very early on in life was like kind of funny to me. Cause I'm like, bitch, what are you talking about? Like, why are you calling me a witch? Like I didn't fully even why do you think she was like what do you think of that what did she mean by one because i am (laughs) and she didn't know it yet um no but really i think that's part of it is like part of it is like it is uh an unruly person it's an alchemist it's someone that doesn't fall into the lines Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. the meter lines of what is like subscribed morality and what is subscribed set of behaviors which is very much so abrahamic religions well it's, rely it's so on. interesting that the use of calling women a witch is something that seems to be like across so many cultures in like the same mm-hmm. use yeah and i actually read some some things and i don't i think this was an urban dictionary so this could be completely wrong but in my research um i heard people would use queen of sheba as kind of that way like who do you think you are queen of sheba kind of thing which mm-hmm. i think is very yeah. interesting too right like suddenly that power becomes problematic it becomes an insult um yeah i don't know if you but have there's thoughts. also like a deeper connection in that so like my mom for example like her father uh they come from like like generations of religious scholars and mystics right like my mom can barely like have a drink like she can't eat red meat like her body can't process it my body struggles with it and part of that is like years and years and years of conditioning around asceticism asceticism and sort of like religious practices of like how to maintain spiritually lighter you know, in your behaviors and actions and non-indulgent vices and not indulgent things that require uh, heavier uses of your own consciousness. So you then have that freed up for studying, understanding and being pious, right? So even that, like your literal genetic ancestry, how you process certain things have to do with the choices of your people, you know, quite literally. And so in that, part of what I wanted to like sort of put forth is like Shiva is looked at she is someone that comes from a culture that was like sun worshippers, right? And part of what I was, the, the earlier point I was making is like Abrahamic religions are very much considered like quote unquote off the light, you know? 
and other paths to God or what other people call to God are often considered paths of the dark. And therein lies part of the fear. It's like, you can't come, you can't come to higher wisdom and you can't come to divinity in a way that is not mine. And therefore you are the other, you are the dark, you are the witch. Do you see how that works? But like we, we should know at this point and not just in skin color, but in, uh, in understanding of like people's understanding of divinity is that there is no right or right, wrong path to God, to oneness, to source, to the universe. And that dark is just as valid. And I think that's part of like the whole, like calling someone a witch thing too. It's like, what is this? How are you coming to divinity? How are you coming to your wisdom? Cause it's not the wisdom I know. Therefore I must be a, afraid of it mm-hmm. you know and so like that's that's huge because that's like that that rhetoric that was like one of the earliest rhetorics of othering in human civilization one of the earliest like the like really like fundamental old school and we see that same rhetoric coming out now um in so many other ways we see it in racism we see it in xenophobia we see it in like religious intolerance Right. But mm-hmm. it's like fundamentally it comes down to that light, light or dark thing. You know, it's like, wow. what is the yeah. other? Yeah. And this idea of community, because, you know, your own community, but outside of that, that's terrifying. So I, she is from a different community. Right. We can argue about where that is. But I think that's part of it, too. Right. Like she is not, you know, she's not in Jerusalem. She's not, you know, she's she's from somewhere else, you know, and I think that that serves that point very well. You know, she's an outsider to him, which is yes, not fair. But even even in that there's like another version of the story that says and so this is the other thing too it's like this is fascinating to me because like I I think a lot about cross-migration I think a lot about like family genealogies I think a lot about like what it takes to survive and evolution right you know like who are your ancestors where did they come from like what choices did they have to make for you to exist right here right now as the person that you are and when you look at like King Solomon's dynasty like Israel and the Jewish dynasty fell apart right after his death you know, the tribe started infighting and that was considered like the downfall of that empire. Uh, what's interesting is certain certain aspects of the mythology also say that he had a dream that the sun was shining on his part of the world and that people didn't appreciate it or abuse it. And so the sun went to Queen of Sheba's area and the Roman area, aka the Byzant- Byzantine area. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even that, it's like, well, who has the torch? Is it the people that have always had the torch or does at some point in human history, um, is it absolutely necessary in the weakening of an empire or a people or their beliefs or value system that you then pass the torch on? You know, if you look at like who is in power, who has greatness, who has, you know, in some ways world domination, but like not even that, you know, you can have world domination and still be considered a weaker empire. Um, but who has the soul really? Like who has like the highest levels of consciousness and can it always be the same people? Cause it can't, right? you know, cause people well, as a whole, you're like inspiring me. Cause I'm like, is there an option then that finally the torch will be passed from white men to <laughs> other people? Like, is, is there some correlation here where we can, but here's the question. Do white men actually have the torch or do they just have domination and corruption? 
do they have the real torch? Who has the real torch? Right. I guess I that? was thinking that you were saying it was the one and the same, but no, I, I no, like not I necessarily. Do, I think yeah. it used to be one and the same. I think there's been a fracturing because part of the fracturing is people believe power is the same as consciousness and power is not the same as consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, I guess the system really matters in that case too, right? Because if you look at capitalism as a system, which I rant about a lot on this podcast, you know, I think then then that always needs a winner, right? And so it's going to be the more powerful, but not necessarily the more, um, you know, the, the, the one, you know, it's not more deserving, right? It doesn't hinge on that. It, it hinges on power. And so when you're working within right. a system, be it whatever it is, capital what insert name here um then there's mm-hmm. always a power dynamic which can disrupt you know and and take away from other people but i do think that's right and even like how we conceptualize power like that's something I, i've been thinking about a lot in my life like nonstop. actually um how we conceptualize power right like why does power be something that takes you yeah. know sorry yeah. can you say that again talk about can you say that again why what? does power have to be something that takes yeah. You know? And so like even that when I think of that King Solomon thing, like he he had a moment where he realized that in using both demons and angels, the demons were working their agenda through him and he was working his agenda, which is empire building, to the cost of his people. So he stopped doing that because he realized creating a great city, creating these pieces of architecture, creating this like empire was actually like taking too much from his people through labor through their life force and he was like no that's not worth it right you think about what that means that means to have power and to choose not the individual vision of power not the empire building vision of power but the actual well-being of your people that's consciousness Mm -hmm. so why does power have to be something that uses corrupt sucks up the life force of people as a figurehead versus true power power plus consciousness, which would be power that channels other power, higher power, but then divests it to its people to further empower them. Well, and I just, I love this story so much. And it seems like so many of the different versions too, like even hearing that, like, that's not something that we often talk about on this podcast is somebody realizing that, hey, maybe this is good for me, but it's taking away too much from other people and changing that, especially, um, Mm -hmm. you know, male figures in folklore. That's not something that we see or have talked about a lot. So I really like that that's something shared in this story and the other Mm -hmm. versions, because I know the one that we told... That's also why he's considered like one of the last greatest kings, because he not only had that level of power at his hands, he used it ethically, Mm -hmm. or he realized his mistakes or his ego in it. That's huge. The ability to say when you're wrong, or you don't know something. I think, for me, that's just such an important part of my human experience. I mean, I'm constantly learning. I love um, learning. And there's so much more that I want to absorb and hearing these stories. I don't know. I'm just I'm really grateful that you shared all of this with us. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come on and talk about like my weird ass thoughts in my head. No, no, it's great. (laughs) Before you go, I actually have a quote from a I was reading. um, It's this book. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called. uh, Sorry. Um, The book is called Demonizing the Queen of Sheba 
boundaries of gender and mm. culture in post-biblical Judaism and medieval Islam. And he has this quote that I think uh, I would love real quick before we wrap up, get your thoughts on. Um, so he says, and again, this is coming from, you know, this is a Westerner looking at this Queen of Sheba. Um, and looking at this story. And so what what he says is, the Bible presents the Queen of Sheba's encounter with King Solomon as a diplomatic mission. The queen comes to test him with hard questions. All of this, all of which he answers to her satisfaction, she then praises, praises him, and then after an exchange of gifts, returns to her own land. By the Middle Ages, Lassner demonstrates the focus of the Queen's visit has shifted from international to sexual politics. The Queen was now portrayed as acting in open defiance of nature's equilibrium and God's design. In these retellings, the author humbled the Queen and thereby restored the world to his proper condition. And I think that's why, you know, it's kind of weird that we told the biblical version, which is honestly not as fun. Like, you know, there's no glass (laughs) floors, there's no, like, you know, and they don't have a sexual relationship, right? She's going there she's testing him and now she's 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 like all right see you later also in one of them they only fucked for one night it was just one night and that's how she has her kid too even that like she goes away they don't officially get married and i heard the the water like she's not allowed to take anything from him and he won't touch her and then Mm -hmm. she says she takes some water and he's like oh you took for me now i can have sex with you and no but even that like he does a thing he intentionally makes spicy food yeah that's like one of the one of the stories i heard is sort of like she goes to get the water and he's like well you know if you take this you're stealing from me and she's like fuck that like i'm drinking this water aka i want to smash (laughs) (laughs) so like that's part of the story i've heard too where it's very much like oh cheekily like yeah i'm taking the water i know what i'm doing yeah, so I guess that's her form of consent. But I would say that it is interesting that it went from her just asking questions to this different viewpoint of her, right? Where she's using her sexuality and creating alliances in a way that's different from the original, the the early, the oldest story. I won't say original because who really knows? Yeah, even the asking the questions again, like when I think of the story, I think of them having this like long, like intimate, intellectual, romantic courtship via asking each other questions for days like riddles for days mm-hmm. and it's almost like that's their dating yeah they're they're asking questions and eating spicy food that seems pretty normal to me <laughs> <laughs> right yeah I, yeah that's a pretty healthy courtship right right i think that's great i love it <laughs> well, yeah, i wish we put you're... each other through a little a little riddle rally (laughs) the only riddles i know from from batman returns (laughs) one of the batmans with joker with like the clock what's wrong yeah anyway (laughs) so i would riddle your partner before you decided uh to get married and i don't know um i I don't know what's y'all's status but like what was dating like for you before you decided like okay this is my equal well he you know two riddles down i was like i guess this will work but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i didn't i didn't put malcolm through a bunch of riddles but uh, i think maybe i did in my own way you know what there's (laughs) you could still do it it's not stopping you now. Right. You can, yeah. you can still test. Just grow our, <laughs> yeah. grow our relationship. That's right. That's right. I want to hear how you did it in your own way, though. Like, because, like, even that, like, see, you did it in your own way. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I think you do, right? Or at least, like, I did in the sense of um, you experience different things together. And, you know, it's not putting him through a riddle, but it's like, okay, this happened. This, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, like, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to move on? Like, how are you going to handle this stressful 
modern life riddle, I guess, in the sense and like seeing how he would handle it. I mean, those are the times and, you know, when our our love like grew and I was like, oh, okay, I can I can trust this. I trust your process. And I think to Mm. me, that's like a little bit of the the riddle. Yeah. And also what the strongest muscle is, obviously. What would you have said to that? What would you have said if somebody was like, what's the strongest? I think tongue is a great answer. I can't think of another oh answer. Oh my God, that's give. so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> we see where your head's at. <laughs> you lead with that on a first date. Be like, you want to see how strong my tongue is? <laughs> that's true. I did not think about it that way, but I tend to say things like that. And I well, because I was going to say like your mind or like, Ooh. you know, thinking of, but yeah. I guess that's where they were kind of trying to go yeah, with the tongue, exactly. but maybe they chose the tongue because it is a little more perverted. Ooh, great point. <laughs> maybe that was intentional. Maybe that was intentional. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Ushi? What would you say to that riddle? Uh, what is my strongest what's muscle? The, what's the strongest muscle in the body? Oh. The heart. The heart. That's a good the one. The heart. Without it, you have no life force. That's what pumps the lifeblood um, everywhere. Everywhere. But it's also like, I think like it's still a metaphor too. Because like for me, like when I lead in life, I have like a lot of different strengths. I have my mind. I have, you know, a, a body that's like a mountain and this like big like sort of force, right? Um, and have I am a strong person, like even physically, even when I have like health issues, but like I have like a lot of physical strength. But when I think of like what is like my realest strength, it's always my heart, you know? It's I always like that. the power to really like my heart like informs and pumps everything into everything Mm -hmm. that that makes me the person that I am that makes me make the choices and decisions in life that I do if I led only with my mind or my tongue (laughs) I would have a very different life and make very different like long-term choices you know I think yeah, I think of like life a lot and I think of like decisions I'm making now and more and more I've started to lead with the heart and mm-hmm. and lead with grace, which is what heart is. You know, it's like grace and kindness and um, openness. Um, I think like your mind would have you be closed off, would have you have harsher boundaries, would have you distrusting of people mm-hmm. because it's smart to distrust people to not get hurt. Um, I think if your tongue, like you would lead a very hedonistic life. I can't unsee this now I that mean, you said I tongue. Not. I can't unsee this now. <laughs> Whenever you say it, I'm it's giggling a over here. Metaphor. <laughs> it's a great metaphor. And like, you know, like I, I lean that way too, but I can't lead that way. And so for mm. me, my mo- my most powerful muscle is like without a doubt, my heart. In all ways, not just literally. I feel like that's like the perfect place to wrap this up that like for all of us to just continue to lead with heart because I think you're right you know we are in like kind of you know troubling times there's just a lot going on and it can be hard and overwhelming and sometimes I think my biggest thing is sometimes people what's the saying that um, perfection is the like the greatest enemy of progress because people are trying maybe to lead too much with their mind and we need to lead with heart and connect and be able to admit when we're wrong, where we need to grow. And um, I don't know, that's my kind of push and desire. And and I love that, Ushi. And thank you for sharing this story and for leading with heart. And we can't wait to hear and see what you do next. Yay. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for having such a podcast that's like not just interesting, but allows for exploration on so many different directions. Um, I just, I think that's fascinating in and of itself that you guys have such an exploratory like concept. Uh, It's just, it's awesome. Thank you so much. We love it too. So and we love you. So we'll we'll yes. definitely uh we'll definitely follow up. But thank you so much for coming on. And I loved discussing all the story with both you guys. Yeah. So uh, we'll I guess we'll catch you all on the folklore flip. Sounds good. Bye. All right. Have a great one. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks, Sushi. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. But you can always find us on Instagram at Femlore Podcast or visit us online at femlore.com. We love what we do, but we can't do it without you. Your listens, shares, and reviews keep us going, so please tell your friends about us. Femlore is produced by Mindy Scott, Rachel Marr, Aaron Crossland, and Lauren Crossland Marr. Audio engineering and music by Aaron Crossland, research and coordination by Lauren Crossland Marr, and as always, canine support provided by Andy and Cody. Ow!